to come in, lap after lap after lap, and what does he do? He ignores them. A committee meeting about it, stick it on and send him out. Just get it through the bus stop chicane, George, try and straight line it, get to the line and we'll see what happens. Perez tries to cut off Hamilton, oh, oh, oh. Hamilton goes straight on. This is quite appalling, this is the worst start for a Grand Prix that I have ever seen in the whole of my life. Graham here, Gerald here. This is Unqualified. We are coming at you for the Japan GP race recap. A week late, but albeit for great reasons, Gerald has made it to Denver. And I got to say, I'm incredibly jealous because he isn't in Philadelphia, which generally is an intolerable city uh, as a status quo. But when the Phillies are in the NLDS and the Eagles are undefeated, it becomes basically uh, Aleppo. So... Gerald, good to see you. Jealous of you. How you doing, buddy? Y'all settle in? Uh, we're getting there, man. It's uh, it's about as good as can be expected about three days in. But yeah, man, life's life's good. Uh, you know, honestly, a little sad not to see the chaos that I'm sure is Philadelphia on in good sporting times. Jerseys everywhere. My mom's one story that she has from Philadelphia is getting on an elevator with like Eagles fans and people with the opposing team's jersey. I can't remember what team it was, but in the elevator, it's just my mom and my aunt, and these people are talking shit. The Eagles are like, (laughs) they're about to get in a fight with these people in the elevator, and they're like in this fancy hotel. So, um, yeah, I would expect nothing less, and it, you know, over the next, now with the Phillies and potentially come February, yeah, it could be a bit of a war zone. Have fun out there. Yeah, I'm not looking forward to it. Um, it's funny that the Eagles genuinely think they're going to play in the Super Bowl. It's not going to happen. But if it did somehow, can you imagine if the Eagles and the Bills fan bases met in the Super Bowl? Like, I mean, the city. I'm not of familiar. Phoenix, I'm not as familiar with the Bills fan base. What's the oh, what's the small, reputation? Small market team. They're absolutely worshipped. That's all anyone in Buffalo cares about. And think about it. They haven't won. They've never won a Super Bowl. Right. And so they're like as hungry as any fan base could be. I mean, they're they're crazy. Um, they're actually unlike Philadelphia, they're like good people, you know, like gen- genuinely friendly, friendly. They've got some like Midwestern slash like Canadian influence. So they actually like, you know, have culture that's enjoyable. Uh, but yeah, if the Bills and the Eagles met in Phoenix, I genuinely think they'd have to evacuate that city. Like if you're if you're a full time resident of Phoenix, Arizona, and that game happens, you need to get the fuck out of there and rent out your apartment and give it at least two weeks after the game's over before you come back. This would be like PSAs, like lock your doors, batten down the hatches. Yeah, I mean Buffalo, generally a, a quieter town, but for that reason, probably th- this is this is the thing. So well, you're a uh, Packers yeah. fan. That's the closest comp there is for a fan base in the NFL. Mm. Small market. The team, the, the team is the town culture, that, that sort of vibe. Yeah. Well, let's not talk Packers, uh, today. We have, we have better news to, to touch on, fortunately, cause it is rough in green Bay these days. <clears throat> I don't know how many of his mom's friends, Zach Wilson has slept with at this point, but he's got to keep it going. Cause it's clearly working. <laughs> that good juju. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, all right. This is not a podcast about uh, the NFL. So, where do we where do we want to start? Let's. Uh, well, since we're a week late, let's let's just run through the order on the on the race, and then we'll hit on a couple of a uh, couple of good topics from there. But overall, uh, Suzuka as a whole, wet weekend, basically start to finish. Although throughout the practice sessions, there was a lot of talk of how 
the practice was so unrepresentative of Sunday because it wasn't going to rain Sunday. Teams weren't running as much as they should have only, which made the, the really the lead up to the race kind of unenjoyable uh, only to then have the race actually be a heavy rain race. Um, and it was a race that although a lot of stop, stoppage time did go the quote unquote full distance, at least 50% by basically two laps. So full points were awarded on the weekend for stopping, winning from pole, basically easy running from first place in the rain. You don't have to deal with any of the, the spray from a, a car in front of you. Ultimately to secure his second driver's championship, albeit it was rather confusing at the right end of the race as to whether or not that actually happened. I'm not sure why, but there was still a lot of confusion. Uh, Leclerc qualified second by just a hundredth of a second uh, and nearly and beat Max off the line. But Max, with a bold move going around the outside in turn one and two, held on, maintained the lead, or I guess retook the lead and never let it up throughout the remainder of the race. I was just going to say, turn one was one of those moments for Max where you just like clenched your chair like real hard because you just thought to yourself, that is a absolutely ballsy line. He has got to be on a knife's edge. It was very impressive. Well, and I think I think there was a lot of talk of that area of the track in terms of traditional like carding wet lines. I think you saw that a lot like a la Brazil 2016, right? Taking the the higher side, the wider line in which there's less maybe standing water as the inside line. I think that's where you saw Russell make some passes throughout the the race as well. And so I, I think he was familiar with that corner, knew what to expect and really exploited it effectively. But I mean, yeah, watching that live, I mean, that was probably the, the highlight of the race and, and incredibly pivotal for the remainder, given the fact that after lap one, you went into red flag and, and Max never really let up since then. But look, Leclerc did a phenomenal job for the time that he could following Max Verstappen, you know, at least half of the distance of the the race restart. But unfortunately, similar to past races, Ferrari succumbs to higher tire degradation and Leclerc fell back so much so that he actually ran that he allowed Perez to close the gap on him. Um, leading to a phenomenal battle in the last few laps of the race. And shockingly, Leclerc losing the car, missing the final chicane, going off, ultimately getting a five-second penalty despite finishing ahead of Perez, dropping him back to third place, ultimately giving Max the second driver's championship and putting Perez in second place in the the driver's championship as well. Did did I, I didn't listen to Perez's full team radio uh, since the race. Did they know, did he and his engineer know as he was closing the gap to Leclerc that the context was that if he passes him, Max wins the title? I actually didn't listen to the to the team radio on that, so I'm I'm not sure, but I doubt it. I I, I don't I, I think it's unlikely that that was part of the calculus. It, of unless like they were the using exchange. Scott, the Sky Broadcast uh, the championship predictor that you know and love. <laughs> unless they had that on the pit wall. Well, I think this, is, <laughs> this should be an interesting topic because for the first time in a long time, I actually didn't listen to the Sky Broadcast. I stuck to the F1 broadcast. And my buddy, after the race, he was I was like, hey, give me the updates because I haven't watched it yet. I'm, I'm a little bit behind. And he was going off on all of these topics of conversation and all of these controversies, which admittedly, I didn't think ever even came up 
on the F1 broadcast, it was like a much more subdued conversation during the red flag. They had other like feature interviews, you know, from team principals, from Pirelli. There was no conspiracy theory. So I'm curious to get your take on how the broadcast (laughs) sounded as a, as a sky listener, but no, no talk of if you pass, I don't, I didn't. Yeah. I don't know. I think they would have projected that onto the radio, but I think Perez was focused on his race. I think it was all about Leclerc falling back, the gap closing and, and look, Perez put the, put the pressure on and, and made Leclerc make a mistake. So obviously the, um, recovery vehicle Gasly thing was a big storyline of the race. How much did they talk about that during the rain delay on the F1 broadcast? I I didn't think it was substantive. They were like, yeah, that's unfortunate. Wasn't indicated early enough. Like there is no like hyperbole in the F1 broadcast with, um, Sam Collins and Jolyn Palmer, they're like, yeah, that sucks. You know, that's certainly something that shouldn't happen. Like, but they're not as, they're not as apt to denigrate F1 and the overall operations of a race. But it was like, yeah, that's a dangerous situation. Not good. But I think they were largely cognizant, especially with Jolyn as the, as a more recent racer, cognizant of like signaling delays, what a driver can and can't know based on what he's seeing on the track, which I think when you compare to Brundle, like there was no, there was none of this stuff when Brundle was a racer, and so all of the, the signaling dynamics I think are are more interesting to hear from from Palmer. But what was that like for for Sky? Was there? Well, it, so it went for a while before they actually picked up on it. So the first like ten minutes of the red flag, I think it was Ted Kravitz acknowledged that Gasly appeared really angry when he got to the pit wall, but they. They didn't know why. And then for like another probably 30 to 40 minutes, they didn't acknowledge what had happened. They didn't know. And then I think a combination of like Twitter going crazy and them going back and addressing replays, they finally picked up on what had happened. And then, man, it is like all they talked about. Every what ultimately time. played out, just for the listeners? Well, so, so basically... Gasly had pitted because of front wing damage for an incident that he had. Hitting the, hitting the hitting the sandwich boards, basically, right? Yeah. And so and, and yeah, he had that crazy ass like thing of foam that was like draped over the front of the car. It's like <laughs> yeah, yeah. as if your hood comes unlatched on the highway and blocks your vision, like on Dumb and Dumber. It was I don't like, even know he, how he got I don't even know how he got back, either. honestly. I don't either. But he had that happen. So then he goes to the pits and basically one lap before the signs incident, which ends up causing the safety car an eventual red flag, he comes back onto the track, but then ends up like a three quarters of a lap down after the safety car has come out. So he is way behind the pack, like a huge outlier as the safety car is attempting to bunch the pack back up. So then I guess an overzealous recovery drive, a recovery car vehicle assumed that every car, assumed, I guess, the pack had already been bunched back up and got deployed, not realizing Gasly was still like a half a lap back and fucking flying through the pouring rain to try and catch back up with the pack. And literally, he came out of turn, was it six? Around that bend. And I mean, the recovery car was 
on the racing line, like literally on the turn exit, and he blows by, kicking up like a massive stream of water. And I'll be honest with you, I, like they started to talk about the history on the Sky broadcast of the of the Gil Bianchi incident at that was at Suzuka, which was basically, if I were, if I think I'm correct in saying, Gil Bianchi was the last F1 driver to die in an F1 race. And the scenario, which it was like, what was it, 2012? It was it was like post-2010. I mean, it was actually not that long ago, 2013. There was a rain race at Suzuka, and they brought a recovery car on while a safety car was on the track and cars were still lapping. And Gil Bianchi went off and then basically plowed into the recovery vehicle and died. So like, and apparently Pierre was good friends with Gil Bianchi, so it was a perfect storm. But it... They talked about it literally for the rest of the broadcast. I mean, it was like every time they would go to Ted Kravitz, he would sit down with somebody and be like, don't you think that these Japanese race stewards and the FIA should all be shot for the crime against humanity they've done today? I mean, it was literally just like, it was like they had done the most egregious thing you could ever have imagined. Which I guess, you know, if you're going to put driver safety ahead of everything else, like I think that's generally fair. But yeah, at least in watching back, I didn't think like they didn't dwell on it in the F1 broadcast as like a crime against a crime against humanity. Like they had intervening interviews. They had other things to talk about rather than focusing on that. So look, I don't know if that's because they had other things they didn't feel the need to dwell on it, or if that was personally important to other people in the sky broadcast. Like, I think it's, I think it's fair. I think it's crazy that you don't have proper communication, you know, GPS where everyone is on the track at all times. So it's clearly a significant failure, but yeah, I don't think it needs 45 minutes of broadcast, but I think that's a rain race when you don't have any other media queued up ready to ready to use. You got to fill the time somehow. I'm going to say something that's probably going to sound really mean. Well, it wouldn't be the first time. Pierre Gasly coming on the media after that race and saying he's going to go kiss and hug his family because of the fact that his life flashed before his eyes. It's a little melodramatic. Don't you think? Like you're not buying it, dude. Okay. Dangerous sport. I get having a recovery car on the track is terrifying, especially in the rain. And if you slide into that thing at high speeds, there's a pretty good chance you're going to be hurt. Cause guess what? That truck's not moving, <laughs> right? It's going to be stationary, but also like maybe slow the fuck down. And also you weren't even within 10 feet of it. So like, Nobody had a gun to your head. Like, nobody shot your a member of your family. I did think it was a bit of a melodramatic reaction, given the actual level of risk that materialized on the track. Well, I think he's been prone to that recently overall. I mean, I think he's had a lot of, like, very expressive outbursts. He's clearly unhappy at AlphaTauri in general. I mean, in this particular race with qualifying, being sent out in traffic. So... Look, you don't know everything happening beyond behind the scenes, but clearly there's a lot of frustration overall, and he probably felt some of that towards his team as well in terms of not being protected, not being notified of like what was going on on track. So I think ultimately like that's probably fair, and I don't know. It's hard to say how people feel after certain events like that. I mean, I don't know that I've experienced something like that going a car accident, you know, an impending car accident at that speed, but... Yeah, I, I think he's I, I think he's been highly vocal in the last couple of weeks. So it'll be interesting to see whether that subsides as he goes to Alpine and and finds some happiness with his 
fellow French compatriots or or whether it actually leads to even even more strife with too many like personalities in in one room. So that'll be the interesting drama next year. I can't wait for them to destroy that team from the inside. I literally can't wait. You're fully in the camp of like self-destruct oh. from like poor driver dynamics. Oh, I can't wait. Hey, pure French. We'll uh we'll see what plays out. All right. Well, I think we've gotten a little distracted from the the overall series of like racing events. Um, but the 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 Gasly thing was an interesting thing to note. But look, I want to get back to Leclerc and ultimately losing it on that final chicane. First off, shocking. Signs went out with a DNF, first lap mistake, basically applied the throttle too soon, too fast. High torque Ferrari, characteristic of what you would expect to see with how the car has performed thus far this year. And it cost signs. And similar for Leclerc, he succumbed to the pressure of Perez chasing him going into the final chicane. And so, look, both Ferrari drivers, while team strategy, car performance has been an easy scapegoat in previous races this weekend, purely issues of driver performance. But to the Leclerc penalty, briefly, did you think it was right? Did you think it was the right call? Was it fair? Yeah. I mean, Charles Leclerc didn't even argue with it in the post-race. I mean, he was like, yeah, that was a penalty. Well, there was some early conversation like, well, he didn't technically gain an advantage did he well no that's not the point though he came back on the he re-entered the track dangerously in a way that impeded another driver's racing line like i don't think it had to do with gaining an advantage um if anything he drove dangerously to maintain his advantage which i think is which i think is different um you know if he doesn't swing all the way out wide there's no question perez is overtaking him so i i think it was a pretty slam dunk Decision. Yeah, I kind of thought it was less about the rejoin and more of the fact that, because you're right, you could call it unsafe because he kind of rejoined, was fine, and then ultimately cut off Perez to try to block him around that right. line. But at the end of the day, even if you take the argument of not gaining an advantage, the fact that you miss a corner and didn't lose an advantage is the fact that you gained an Like, you shouldn't be able to maintain your position within fractions of a second in front of another driver and you just cut corners. So... The fact that there was any question after the fact, I mean, the FI came to a very quick decision, seemed pretty cut and dry to me. Yeah, 100%. If you said another way, if you miss a corner and lose your racing speed as a result of it, you should not be able to maintain your position purely, purely, based, purely based on car position. Like, and that's yeah. essentially Especially what Especially when you're following very closely, right? When a car is that close behind you, you, you should lose the position, right? Yeah. Basically, and like look, you... Yeah. Perez forced him into a mistake. I mean, he did. Like it's, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's fair, fair is fair. And overall for Perez, look, qualifying substantively behind Verstappen, I believe it was almost four tenths of a second behind, but ultimately delivered in the race, closed the gap to Leclerc when he needed to, handed Verstappen the race victory in Japan. As many had said, the FIA was intent on doing so. Um, again, another another classic conspiracy, which, you know, it's interesting. They were able to restart the race with just enough time to get, you know, what, 27, 28 laps in. You think there was any coincidence there uh, in terms of when the FIA decided to to restart the race to make sure that he could win it in Suzuka with Honda? What say no, you? None. Absolutely not. If, if the FIA was conspiring to do anything, they would be conspiring for him to have probably won it in America because of the market value of that race. I mean, I don't know what why they would care at all about the relationship between Honda and Red Bull. 
I also think that's far too much like 3D chess for the FAA. I think they're just trying oh, to hang on every fucking decision what, yeah, at a time. They're trying to just stay out of the headlines, man. Well, they're they're uh, they're not doing a great job. Um, so look, Perez also on top of uh, you know a, a good closing, he took signs off the line as well, and so great start, great finish, good weekend for him, and now he he leads Leclerc by one point in the constructors' championship, which leads one to think. What is what is Red Bull's focus here going forward? You could say constructors and second place for Perez, but they basically have constructors locked up as well. So when you think about Perez in second place, do you foresee any kind of team orders, qualifying prioritization going forward at this point? Like, do you think they change strategy at all? Or no, as a team, like, what do you value more? Max breaking the single season win total or Perez getting second in the drivers? Like both have equally zero value to you as a constructor. So I don't really know how you would prioritize one over the other, you know, and it's not like Perez's contract is hanging in the balance. So yeah, I mean, maybe they want to report reward him for being a good teammate because he is a great teammate, but I can't see them giving max team orders to prioritize team orders that basically change the dynamic of a race, like up to a whole pit stop. Strat- I mean, Max still is gapping Perez by an entire pit stop on traditional racetracks. So if anything, the storyline here isn't Perez's relative uh, performance. It's Red Bull just crushing the development battle. (laughs) I mean, they are putting distance on Ferrari late in the year. I know everybody's going to say, well, it's because they're spinning over the cost cap. But like, there's no denying, man. They are out developing everybody else on the grid. Well, the cost cap mention was a good bit of foreshadowing, but to to follow on to your Perez point, I think you're right. I don't know that Perez will even be in a position close enough in any given race for team orders to make sense other than telling Max, hey, slow down by 10 seconds and give the lead to Perez. I think where you're more likely to see it is Verstappen, go out, put up a good lap in qualifying, but then you know, on certain races, we're going to ask you to give a toe to Perez to support one of it, the weaker parts of his yeah. race weekends. Get him in a higher part on the grid, move him up the order. Let's get some more one twos. But you're right. They're probably not. I don't know that they're even going to be in a position for to give team orders to Max, honestly. There's been few and far between where that would have even been possible. So agree with you on that. Um, moving forward here, look, signs, qualified third. Blew it straight out of the gate, both on race start as well as um, spinning into the wall, ending his race, ultimately causing the red flag. But if we move down the order, really a shocker for the week was was Ocon. I mean, phenomenal qualifying, qualified fifth, capitalized on the sign mis- signs mistake, held his position in fourth for the entirety of the race despite constant unrelenting pressure from Hamilton and probably one of the most like impressive displays I've seen from a driver Hamilton. I mean, on his bumper lap after lap after lap, I'm not even sure how Hamilton was able to see half of the time, but Ocon put up a stout defense, never really made any mistakes. The Alpine clearly had exit speed out of corners where uh, Ocon was able to make some sub take some suboptimal lines and still hold position. But you got to give him credit for a, a phenomenal weekend and helping pull Alpine back ahead of, of McLaren. I, I know you're a big 
France and an Ocon fan. I mean, would you like to to add on a little praise to to him and the team this weekend? Look, I'm not. I, I'm not. I don't disagree with anything you just said, but I just can't overlook the fact that there is nobody on the grid that can finish in the top five unusually, and me care so little. I really don't give a shit at all. I really don't. I I don't care at all. I don't care if he's fifteenth. I don't care if he's fourth. I don't I don't even actively cheer against the guy. I just literally don't care that he exists. I really don't. <laughs> I'm not even sure what is the root of the the animosity. But look, that's the only basically the battle for battle for fourth is the only thing we got going at this point. He he is about as interesting as an eight by eleven piece of printer paper to me. I just I he I, he does nothing for me, man. Nothing for me. What is it? Regular printer paper? Is it cardstock? Is it a little eggshell? There's a lot there. No? Not doing it for you? Yeah, right, great, well, race. Maybe, great race. Well, well, maybe another guy that uh, gets you a little hotter under the collar. Uh, let's talk about Hamilton. Uh, look, not, not beating Russell on basically every lap except the final lap to go on, final lap of qualifying, out-qualify Russell, lead him throughout the race, basically get the advantage through the double stop, which puts Russell in a bad position, loses him about four spots. Um, but Hamilton putting on an impressive attack of Ocon, but was it really impressive? He didn't pass him. So plus zero on, on that battle. What's your take on, on Hamilton's race weekend? I mean, Hamilton relative to Ocon is not really the story for me. I think the story is more so that, Everybody was talking about George Russell, you know, basically outshining Hamilton for the first half of the season. Oh, look now, the last eight races, Hamilton's outqualified Russell, I think five to three. And, uh, you know, circumstances of races and some mistakes that he's made, he hasn't necessarily just clawed back every point in the driver's championship. But I do think that he's starting to show that in a car that is more drivable, more predictable, dare I say, a little bit more accustomed to what he's used to. He, he is still a, a stone-cold killer. Um, I think everybody wants to see a Hamilton-Russell battle in a Mercedes that's actually a front-running car. That, to me, is the best possible thing that can happen to F1 next year, is for them to be fighting at the front, because I, I really do genuinely want to see both those guys go at it. Um, Why does it matter if they're at the front or not? Why don't you feel like this has been the the battle you would have wanted to see? That's how I feel. I, I think it's been a phenomenal well, sort of evolution over the course of the season and was Hamilton sort of disadvantaged with sort of testing new components or not. And now that the, maybe they're not doing yeah, that let, quite as much, Hamilton's like dragged it back, taking it and qualifying better in like extenuating race conditions, rain races. But why why the difference, I guess, if if they're more at the front? Well, two things. The smaller one, the smaller one is just like wanting to see a more consistent car performance, so that I feel like I get a better measurement of one driver versus the other. To the point you just made, with all the development they've been doing, there's just a lot of additional variables to throw in. It makes it harder to kind of discern who is objectively performing better, um, and gives a lot more room for excuses. Um, but the second one is I just want their battle to be more consequential to the overall constructors' championship. Like I'd love to see both of those guys going after Max, right? And then add a Ferrari into the mix. I mean, that's the battle we all wanted at the summer break, and we thought we might get when Mercedes, you know, brought all these improvements on. And lo and behold, Red Bull just continued to outdevelop everybody, which I don't think any of us called. You know, I think we all thought Max was winning the drivers, but I don't think objectively we felt like on a team basis they would start to gap everybody to the extent that they have. 
Um, I mean, pretty safely for me, I always thought it was a second versus third battle into the season. It's just unfortunate they weren't able to... But they're stretching it. They're stretching it. Like, no one's catching them. They're not... No one's even getting closer. It's literally getting worse. With Red Bull, it's not even close. I'm a bit more disappointed that I I was really hoping to see Mercedes close the gap on Ferrari. They had a couple of bad races where they were really disadvantaged. If it was a little closer, this would have been a phenomenal weekend with Sign going out, Russell performing well. But look, I think you've just seen him fall a little bit short this season. And so it'll be interesting to see how they how they continue to develop in the next year because clearly they've they've closed the gap to some extent. Um, but even so, I, I'm not sure they've closed it enough without Ferrari mistakes where they would really be a second place team still. Like they, to me, at this point, they still seem to be a comfortably third team. Yeah, I I, I think that car is going to look very different next year. <laughs> I like I don't think you're going to see zero. Zero side pods. You don't think they're going uh, zero side pods? No, I think they're going to completely change the aerodynamic philosophy of that car. Interesting. What's your source on that? No, obviously just none. <laughs> um, other than listening to, uh, what was it, Andrew Shovlin, the chief technical officer at Mercedes, went on Beyond the Grid um, uh, with Tom Clarkson like a couple weeks ago. And Tom Clarkson asked him, like, are you scrapping the philosophy of that car and moving on? And he obviously gave him a non-answer. But the way that he non-answered it, I was kind of like, oh, they've already made up their mind on this, mm-hmm. clearly. So, yeah. So you think it's going that way? Because I would have thought going into, like, the summer break, they actually had reason to be a little bit more confident and and maybe they were going to stick with it. But you think they're pivoting, pivoting from that, that long, now? That was a long time ago, homie. That was a long time ago. But... Maybe we're both wrong and the issue is their engine and they're going to fix that and then it's going to turn out to be a brilliant era philosophy. Uh, but it just, that that car seems to have no efficiency transitioning from low speed turns to straightaways. It's all of one or and none of the other, essentially. And, yeah, they're uh, good on tracks where you're able to maintain like a healthy middle ground. Correct. But as it, when you have extreme changes. Yeah. Well, and that's the comment that even Vettel made. I think Vettel made it. Uh, yeah, Suzuka. He he's kind of hinting at this whatever this thing is that Red Bull's got on their rear suspension where the car height, the ride height naturally is shifting. Something in that suspension is mechanically shifting and changing the ride height to make it more efficient in low speed versus high speed turns. And um, it's not active suspension, clearly, but it's something that they've engineered that has made that thing by far the most efficient car on the grid. Um, yeah, and Mercedes yeah, just doesn't have that they've struck a really healthy balance, right? You see Mercedes on one side and you see Ferrari on the other one, right? Mercedes good in high speed, both straights and corners. Great for tire Ferrari, deg when they can heat them up. Great for tire deg, great for overall uh, durability. Whereas Ferrari is just like power, full throttle, torque out of the corners, great in low speeds, um, but with low, low durability ultimately and and on tire deck. So yeah, again, it all goes back to you hear balance, balance, balance. And it just seems like between the engine, the aero, moderate degradation, Red Bull's like sitting at that, that perfect medium. So we'll see how that plays out going forward. All right, let's push on here. So look, we touched on Ocon, we touched on Hamilton, uh, phenomenal races for both of them. Um, We got to talk about Vettel and and his phenomenal race, finishing sixth. He started ninth, had a spin on lap one, basically was one of the first drivers in the pit 
alongside Latifi and early to enters was the way to go this race, ultimately bringing up, bringing him up the grid and holding off uh, Alonzo throughout a decent portion of this race as well. And so clearly Vettel's love for Suzuka, very strong. I mean, is there any other driver where you have such a a proclivity for a, a specific track? I mean, it seems crazy because I don't think it was anything in the Aston Martin that was changed as of this weekend that put them in a better position. I, it seems so much Vettel and his comfort on this track, particularly in the conditions. No, yeah. Find, find your friend that loves you the way Sebastian Vettel loves Suzuka. He, and the other thing, he would not stop talking about it. <laughs> yeah. It was like he had a cr- like his crush, like his middle school crush. His wife was and probably he, jealous. Oh, yeah, dude. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, hats off to him. Um, I don't know if he's... Is he particularly known as a great wet weather racer? I don't know that he is relative to the other two plus time world champions. Um, but yeah, he just loves Suzuka. Um, and there, you know, there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, there are other drivers that have had, tra- I mean, obviously Checo on street. Um, I'm trying to think of anybody else on the grid who's got a similar reputation for certain tracks. I mean, I think Hamilton has dominated certain tracks, but it's hard to say if that's just not been the car dominance versus I was going to say him in particular performance. Yeah. So it's good to see him though. Finally see him get out of not just Q2, not well, not just Q1, but actually get out of Q2 into Q3. So I, I mean, look, he's had a tough run of it with qualifying, missing out Q2 on numerous occasions by just a few thousandths. So it was good to see him. And look, just to round out Aston Martin, I mean, while Stroll did poorly in qualifying, a number of great moves, particularly on the restart, and ultimately finished up well up the pack from where he he started. But what was your take on kind of Stroll's relative performance? Dude, well, you mentioned the restart. Uh, the the race start, uh, he put on like a video game move up the inside. It, it it is one if you go watch the onboard, it's one of the most impressive things I've I've like ever seen in an onboard. He he basically got his tires. I don't know how he found it, but literally on this like I don't know what it was. It was almost like an upward sloping part of the asphalt that was like the last two feet before the inside barrier on the home straight, or I guess the water like wasn't sitting. And from his onboard, like it just looked dry. So he literally like shoots up the inside, puts his tires on that patch. And in the spray, can't see shit and goes past like four cars. Balls to the wall, just, and then blows into the inside of that last turn and breaks perfectly. It was like, obviously very uncharacteristic of Lance Stroll, but objectively incredibly impressive. Like incredibly impressive. Well, he's one who who has a great reputation for rain races, clearly capitalized on it here. And continuing to i think in my perspective as tough as we uh, we we were on him early in the season i I think he's really come into form this second half i mean look we put him and latifi in the same camp and if you look at the performances in the second half of the year you can't put them side by side anymore and so look pay driver or not you got to give him some credit for outperforming a world champion, making moves like that in the rain. Like you can roll your eyes all you want at me and scoff at Stroll, but look, give the man some credit. He's doing fine. I know he's Canadian and you got to put your nationalistic animosities aside, but the man did fine. I guess the rain is the only time that being a pussy and feathering the gas pedal actually pays off for you. So good for him. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. Well, look, it was a, 
Um, another Canadian who who had an even better weekend. I oh mean, God! We we would be remiss if we didn't talk about Mr. Nicholas Latifi, the the sausage prince, <laughs> adding almost twenty over twenty five percent to his points total in this one race alone. The man with nine career points plus two on the weekend. Wait, finally. Wait, wait. Is he officially ahead of Nico Hulkenberg in the driver's standings? <laughs> I think he's he's finally passed Hulkenberg to sit twentieth in the driver's standing. Now just but two he's points. Still, but, but he's still behind DeVries. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. I guess maybe is he still twenty one then? He might he might be twenty first, or he could be tied with DeVries. No, he's, actually, he's tied with DeVries twenty twenty one. So uh, Nick oh, well, and congratulations, Nick. Yeah. Well, he, uh, he made, yeah, the Knicks, Knicks tied for, for 20th. Um, look, I mean, he capitalized, I think more so team, great team strategy pitting early, but credit to him. He didn't blow it on inters on a, on a wet track. So give the man a bit of, a bit of credit. Um, all right, well, let's, um, I think we've run through the grid. I think the big notable thing in, in terms of team order overall is Perez passing Leclerc for second in constructors or driver championship for stopping locking down his second world title um, and and Alpine now passing McLaren for uh, fourth in the Constructors' Championship. But let's talk for Stoppen. This is officially his second world title. Um, what's, your, what's your thought? I mean, do you think that this, this has some legs to it in terms of Red Bull's persistent technical advantage? Yeah, look, he's not the youngest driver to win. Well, wait. Is he the youngest driver to win two titles? Yeah. Yeah, he is. Because Hamilton won his first with McLaren when he was like 23. And he was... Uh, actually, wait a minute. No. I thought Vettel, Vettel would have been... Vettel he won been. four straight, and his first one was when he was like 23 or 24. So you're right. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, that's actually an interesting comp because... Look, my general view is like... It's hard to... It's hard objectively to say that anyone has a chance to win eight world titles... Because the idea of that is just preposterous in general. But if anyone has a chance, <laughs> he's off to a pretty decent start. And there's no denying that he is now with a team that has come out in the first year of a major regulation change and, and gapped everyone. So I'm not, I'm not like certain that their mechanical advantage is persistent until the next major shift in regulations, which is really the 2026 engine. Um, but it's hard to think that Red Bull is at least not going to be competitive every year until that engine change. So he's got a shot with a car that is going to be relative, relatively consistent for the next four years. And so he's that puts him at 25. Six. Yeah. That puts him at six 20, overall. He could have six before he's 30, which is crazy. Absolutely crazy. I mean, Schumacher didn't have six before. Nobody's had six before they were 30. I I get that there's a lot of things that have to work in his favor for that to happen. All I'm saying is, like, he's objectively off to, collectively, between himself and his team's ability to come into a new regulation era so strongly. He's objectively in a better position than almost anyone, except for maybe other than Vettel. Like, when Vettel won his first two, like, I'm pretty sure the second one he won in 2011, Red Bull was, like, unbeatable. So, it's a decent it's a decent comp. And then, obviously, the turbo hybrid, Eric, and Mercedes. But it, 
Yeah, it kind of makes it the the whole the Hamilton situation even sadder, right? Because you would have seen a world in which he wins his eighth, and now this is Verstappen's first, and he's finishing with five. And then you have a question of can Red Bull maintain through that generation? So he he was able to pull pull one forward basically. But I mean, yeah, look, it, I think that's where you you start to see some interesting dynamics with you know. I think Red Bull was happy with where they at on their own with some modest support from Honda and realizing the success that they were having. They kind of looked at Porsche and were like, I'm not sure what we're getting out of this relationship, but now the the potential reemergence of Honda back into the sport. Do you think that's maybe some additional concern with 2026 or they just see that as further confidence building of having a major engine supplier like that interested in sustainable fuels, you know, overall transition from combustible engines, et cetera, and what that means in terms of the 2027 and beyond. I, I, I take Christian Horner at his word when he says that we're prepared. To, he basically, every time he's asked this question, he's like, we're prepared to do this on our own, uh, talking about the engine division. And I actually take him on his word on that because, I mean, they literally built a factory <laughs> for engine manufacturing. So, like, you have to be serious to an extent. Uh, they're obviously not just planning to, like, only build one part of the engine. Like they're building the whole thing. To me, the Honda thing is actually just more about it's to me. It's actually not that complicated. It's that Honda had a board that made a decision to get out of racing. And then they immediately got a different board of directors and the board of directors was like, what the fuck were these guys thinking? And so now they're just trying to weasel their way back in. The real question for me is did Honda give up so much intellectual property to Red Bull in the exit? that they aren't going to be able to get themselves into as meaningful of a position in the development of the engine in the next partnership. I don't know. Nobody knows the details of how exactly that worked. I know that a lot of Honda people got poached by Red Bull and left. And like, so who knows like where the dice will fall on the next uh, version of it. But man, that Honda engine clearly is going to be good enough till 2026. And that's scary for anybody that's not Red Bull. Yeah, look, it's hard to say where intellectual property rights and and ability to add value plays out, but I think throughout the weekend, Jolin made some interesting commentary around just the overall like experience of Honda in Formula One overall, and had talked about the experience with McLaren and sort of feeling like they got put in a box where McLaren was saying we need the the car and the engine to go in this direction, and Honda was a bit more of like order takers from that in terms of a smaller engine or how it was structured. And, and, and so ultimately, you know, that wasn't successful. Whereas it seems like Red Bull and Honda have a far more symbiotic relationship where they know what they bring to the table. Clearly Red Bull has the overall team management. They have the aero expert, whereas Honda knows how to make a really good durable engine and provide a pretty good development program to what they were ultimately able to deliver a car last year that started off in first and now aero engine together is really well balanced. And so I don't see a situation where like there's any weird barriers between Red Bull and Honda. I think if anything, they come back and it's very hands-on, it's highly collaborative and Red Bull, I mean, and, and Honda is getting some access to knowledge throughout the continued continued development. But yeah, I mean, I think it was ultimately crazy global times, pandemic, et cetera. Honda got spooked. They were trying to go a certain way with their overall sort of 
production and and what their product composition looked like in terms of being more EVs and somebody else coming and saying, look, hybrid fuels, time to like transition from A to B and y'all just won and you're going to win again. This is stupid not to be in this thing. And so I think it was crazy that they ever got out when they did, but a wise decision if now they pivot and and get back in uh, at this time. And I think there'll be a huge help because I think that just helps Red Bull maybe not go down a path that might lead to their own destruction. I think Honda can be just a very good like consultative partner in making sure that they they continue to make positive strides. Agreed. And and I would imagine that the pursuit of it becomes less and less capital intensive for Honda as Red Bull continues to build out their own infrastructure. So if anything, it gets more palatable to them as a company because they don't have to sink as much fixed cost into something that they don't feel like has as much transferable value to their commercial um, line, which, you know, I get that, right? Yeah, but I, th- I think it's probably cons- consultative. I think they still get access to like knowledge and information of the continuous development, but less men on the ground and and probably branding, more branding rights restored akin to what you saw in, in Japan as well. All right. Well, since we're talking the business end of things, uh, what do you say we go to everyone's favorite topic here? Uh, the cost cap controversy continues. Um, the FIA coming out this week, uh, well, I guess last week, maybe at this point, um, basically announcing the end of their review, which interestingly they noted they, this was not a formal investigation. They only reviewed the documentation that was provided to them by the teams Basically, the the news that we have so far, and I think it's still incomplete, but you correct me if I'm wrong. Basically, we hear two teams considered for infractions, Aston Martin not going over the cost cap, but purely a classification issue of expenses, whereas Red Bull going over the cost cap, but in the quote unquote, to a minor degree, constituting less than 5%, but still unclear as to how much less than 5%, 4.9 or, you know, less than 1%. So that hasn't been revealed. The, the, the rumor mill being that the classification of the expenses being things like staff leave and catering expenses to much of the, the, the meme world. But one, what was your takeaway from the, the announcement from the FIA regarding the cost cap? And the big question of classification does it really matter whether it was catering and staff expenses? Because isn't $1 here the same as $1 somewhere else? Um, yeah. I, well, that last question is a good one. I've actually thought a fair about, about this. Fair amount about this. Yeah, it's kind of like a, how can you say that your overage is due to catering? Like, it just depends on which expense you count first. Like, it could easily just as much have been about the front wing that you... <laughs> Spend another million on like, um, so it must have to do with how they've classified a certain type of like food or otherwise like entertainment expense. Um, I would imagine. And so they basically thought that however they were classifying it, it wasn't against the cost cap and the FIA is saying methodologically it is. And so that's why it's the sticking point. I don't know. My two observations, the whole thing, same. I maintain my position from two weeks ago. I think this is a giant nothing burger. I don't think any consequential penalties are going to come out of this. Um, I think another thing that we should be asking ourselves is how did this leak? I, like, 
the FIA has got to, I mean, maybe this isn't going to be a public thing, but they've got to ask themselves how it leaked. Because to your point, it wasn't a special investigation. I mean, most people didn't even know this shit was going around until Toto and Bonato started talking about it. So, like, it just to me seems like just the most politicized thing ever. Uh, oh, so now, so now you care about leaks? You didn't care about leaks for four and a half, four years. Now you care about leaks? Now leaks are things to be locked down. I thought leaks were all the rage. More leaks, right? What happened? No, I, I just think this is one of those things where it's like nobody had anything better to talk about. We've said this before. I think the penalty is not going to be championship altering. Um, what should it be? Pro- Do what? Because well, what should the what should the penalty be? Because I believe as a part of the FIA's announcement. Um, you know, they, they list off a, a whole slew of things which could have been considered from financial penalties to championship points to wind tunnel development time to subsequent cost caps. Like, what should the penalty be? Because now you have Toto Wolf coming out and saying, well, if it's not, if it's not strong enough, then we're just going to go over the cost cap. I think it's going to be, um, well, the easy, the easy thing that the FAA could do that would cover them on both fronts with Red Bull and with Mercedes is to do like a 20 to 50 point retroactive deduction in constructors points from last year, which isn't influential on the finishing order of the championship, but could be on a go forward basis in another scenario. So why the last you, year's championship? That's one thing that I'm not understanding. Why are the overspend even- was dirt because the overspend was during last year's championship battle. Got it. So you're, you're basically saying you spent a million dollars too much and in the middle of the championship battle where that overspend occurred, we're going to deduct 20 points retroactively from the finishing order, which again, isn't consequential to the actual finishing of constructors last year, but it is establishing a precedent that would say, hey, if you fuck around and do this and you barely beat another team in the constructors championship, you could kill yourself retroactively through this kind of overspend. Why not then? Um, so why then just restrict it to constructors? Why wouldn't that also carry forward to drivers championship as well? Why should Max be entitled to maintain last year's championship? I think that that's overly punitive. And I think that you call it politicization of F1. I'd say, welcome to the club. Uh, I just don't think that's tenable. The optics of that just aren't tenable. Um, I don't think the sport would ever recover from it. I mean, if you thought, the sport was never going to recover from the Michael Massey controversy in the final race. Reversing it a year later is like a true hold my beer type moment for the FIA. Like, I don't know how they could ever, ever sell that. And also think about that from Max's perspective, dude, you battled your ass off. You finally got a break in the last race. You won. And somebody's going to take your driver's championship away because we spend an extra million on catering. Dude, that think about how ridiculous that sounds. Yep. Well, I think it's I think it's an interesting take because points from a constructors championship it, it one seems punitive enough. That's a higher high enough risk tolerance where you're you're having to now bank on the uncertainty of can we exceed those constructors points in our win based on overspending uh, and also is in keeping with these sort of FIA's at least current principles of, you know, let's make a spec, you know, let's, let's set a precedent, but not, not overturn sort of standings, victories, et cetera. And so I think that makes sense. 
especially because where my head is at is it should be lowering subsequent years cost cap as well as development time and probably to the tune of more than a one-to-one because I don't think that that's punitive either. Like if you're going to overspend a million one year, it should probably be what, two to one, three to one, like how much is enough? Um, And so I do think it should have subsequent year penalties probably to the tune of greater the one-to-one because otherwise people would just front load their penalties and say, well, yeah, hell yeah, we're going to just spend the shit out of this this year, but then two, three years down the road, we're good to go. So I think definitely wind tunnel, subsequent development cost cap. And then, yeah, I think it's fair to call it some number of points. Now, how you set the tolerances on all of those, no idea. Yeah, I don't know you're, what's you're right. consequential enough. If you only if you only penalize people retroactively on constructors points, then what's stopping Haas from just going 50 million over and saying, fuck it, we don't care, or last anyway? Like, yeah, no, it's, it's a really well-made point. I agree. Yeah. yeah, and I think you can use this as the precedent to say, here's how it would have impacted X. Sure, it maybe didn't turn that, so you don't upset the Apple card too much. But yeah, it's got to be a points and like a past or current and future future status. So I agree. I agree with that. Well, time will tell. I mean, it's clearly not done yet. Um, so we'll see what what comes out of it. Um, I think we touched on on this a little bit, but driver lineup updates finally solidified this this week or last week. Uh, Gasly officially to Alpine, DeVries officially to Alphatari. And I'm, from my understanding, Haas and Williams, still a bit of open questions. But um, look, what is your thoughts on Gasly and DeVries? And then um, do you agree that Gunther Steiner and Haas team strategies trying to sabotage Mick Schumacher as much as possible to uh, justify putting Hulkenberg in the seat? Why would Haas hate Mick Schumacher so much. I don't know, but it seems like they are not a fan. I mean, just because he's crashed three times and cost a bunch of money, I mean, that could be enough to do it. Riddle me this. Who that has raced for for Gunther Steiner has Gunther Steiner liked other than the second version of Kevin Magnuson? Well, and which driver for Haas other than Magnuson has not cost the team in an exorbitant amount of money? Exactly. I, so, and also like, well, did Mick cra- did Mick crash in qualifying at in Japan? No, not qualifying. He crashed at the end of FP one, which meant he couldn't run an oh, FP two. Yeah. New chassis, high expense. Um, yeah, that was, yeah, that was a big so, goal. And it was just a stupid mistake too. Like I think that was like salt in the wound of like you were just you were just coming in after like a race. You weren't even on like a fast lap. You had done a race start. And then you spun out on your in-lap, basically. So it was kind of embarrassing. At this point, I'd give the whole mix staying or going about even odds. I might have given him slightly better than even before he crashed in practice. <laughs> Crashing in practice is not a great way to keep your seat. Um, I guess I just don't understand Hulkenberg as a decision relative to a dice roll on a young, talented driver. Or just any young driver. Like... Yeah, I don't see what the future I, I, is of Hulkenberg relative to you, someone else. If you had a car, if you were more in the position of like a McLaren or an Alpine, where you were in a more consequential place on the grid from a constructor standing standpoint, and you really just needed a driver who you who you knew wasn't a world beater, but you could trust. They they weren't going to just be a total dud. Then a guy like Hulkenberg for two years makes total sense. But if you're at Haas's position, dude, why not roll the dice? Like, I don't understand 
why you wouldn't just go pay some young guy less than a million dollars a year, save a ton of money, and just see if he pans out. And I get they've done a lot of that recently, but like, I don't know. Well, and at the very least, why wouldn't you go for Ricardo and say, look, you got to prove something. Here's a small check. You want to be in a seat? Here's your seat. Because, dude, if this guy doesn't, if he takes a year off, he's not coming back. And so, but I also don't see the huge downside with Mick either. Like, I just don't see a future with Hulkenberg relatively over some young driver. It just seemed weird in this race that Schumacher qualified better. He was in front during the race. And then they chose to pit Magnuson to then leave Schumacher out in hopes of a safety car. Look, you could say if it worked out, puts him in a great position. But I guess in my mind, I would have pitted the driver in second. I'm sorry, pitted the driver in first onto intermediates and left the driver in second out to be a bit more of a gamble. And so it just seemed like an odd decision and a bit of a bias towards Magnuson and ultimately led to a better outcome because Schumacher ended up at the back of the grid once he pitted a few laps later for for intermediates. So it's just an odd, odd decision that I thought was maybe another sign that they're moving away from Schumacher and won't even give him the benefit when he's earned it in, in qualifying. And then, and then how about Williams? Any, uh, any new news on, on who's sitting in that one? Words of Sergeant. Yeah. I hadn't heard anything. I I mean, I'm going to continue to guess Logan Sargent, mostly on the basis of wishful thinking, but yeah, I haven't heard anything. How about you? No, I think it's, it's been surprisingly quiet on the, on the Williams front. So we shall see. All right, man. I think that does it for this for this week. Anything else you wanna you wanna touch on? No, obviously uh, we had this weekend off. Coda next weekend, which is always a great show. It's a bit of an interesting kind of uh, new third third phase of the season, if you will, in that the championship's over and now everybody's just kind of racing for the glory. But uh, Austin always puts on a good show, so. Um, it should be a fun one. Well, actually, I, th- I think we've, we 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 are remiss to miss our personal podium and, and DNF of the week. So ultimately, I, I put Ocon up there because I know you're not going to. So got to give him credit. Great qualifying, consistent race, stout defense uh, against a, a seven-time world champion. But who did you have that was a more worthy podium recipient? I mean, this is this is a bit of a hot take, but I, I think stroll for for honestly just the quality of his race start i i I just i cannot stress enough how impossible what he did was uh i if you haven't seen it you have to watch it so i'm gonna give him a podium just for the race start wow i am uh I'll, I'll, i'll be honest i am shocked um good for you graham way to overcome your prejudices and and be able to have an objective take i i respect that um how about your dnf of the week I don't know. I mean, Sonoda had a pretty horrible home race, all things considered. So, yeah, maybe I'll say Sonoda. Just disappointing for you. Well, I went with Ferrari drivers. I mean, this week, no one else to blame but themselves, albeit they have a, a what is it now? They have a 67-point lead on Mercedes in the Constructors' Championship, so I don't see that getting eroded over the next four races, but I mean, just another bad showing purely on, on driver performance. But what's your take on, on Austin 
in terms of who you'd expect to uh, expect to excel here. Probably not going to be a rain race if I had to put my money on it. Yeah, probably not a rain race. Um, part of me kind of thinks that Mercedes might have a decent weekend. It's going to be hotter than usual. That middle sector is pretty high speed, high downforce characteristic. There are some like slow-ish speed turns at Austin, but it's not the dominant personality of the track. Um, yeah, I, I might actually, you know what? I think Lewis Hamilton wins the race. Whoa. Bold. I think that I, I think that Lewis Hamilton's gonna get his first race win in Austin. Yeah. All right. Nice hot take. All right. Yeah, All right. I, I think ultimately Max is going to break the single season win record, but I think he's gonna do it in Mexico. Mm. Or wait, he would tie it in Mexico, break it in Interlagos. So yeah. Because he's one back right now. You're still on Verstappen for Interlagos. Okay, interesting. Yeah, look, I think it'll be a good track for Mercedes. I also think Alpine will continue to to perform here, and I think they open the gap up on on McLaren. I mean, you got a couple of long straights. You have some really high-speed sections. Um, I'm looking for Alonso to have another impressive impressive weekend. How, how much of a storyline do you think the uh, brittle asphalt of the Aston circuit will be this weekend? It always seems to make a make its way into the conversation every year. They talk about Americans can't put down asphalt. Hey, we know all about asphalt. <laughs> um, so I guess the question then behind that is, whose suspension do we think is going to break this year's? Uh, a la Vettel and, and Ferrari, whatever it was, 2019 or 2020. Yeah. I mean, in general, I think the car that is most likely to break is... I was going to say Alpine, but they I mean, they're up there. Them. I mean, the only one I would be to take over them is uh, Alfa Romeo. So I'm sure I was we'll going to say DNF. Botas is a surefire DNF. Yeah, no doubt about <laughs> it. We're definitely going to see an, uh, an Alpha DNF. So that's the safe money. Well, time will tell, man. Um, the safest money, though, is betting that Matthew McConaughey is going to be the guy that waves the checkered flag. That's the oh, safest yeah? money you could ever. Oh, yeah, 100%. Well, I'll tune in just for that. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> all right, my friend. Well, uh, I think we'll. I think it's safe to say we'll we'll be queued up a little bit more in a timely fashion after the Austin GP Monday, Tuesday, coming at you. So, talk to you then. Always a pleasure, buddy. See you. Peace. Peace.